baptism by fire here on my first Sunday. <laughs> All right. If that's the biggest mistake I've made in my first week, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. So, we made that decision because we thought this is the best time that we can possibly have to reevaluate and refocus where we want to be as a family. And it may seem like a little trivial decision, but it's a decision that we made during this time of transition to be the family we want to be. And at the same time, I look at our church, and this is much of a transition for you as it is for us. Because to a lot of you guys, I'm a relative stranger up here. You don't really know a ton about me. You know some about me, but not a ton. And so this is a transition for you the same way it's a transition for us and for our family. And I think this is the prime opportunity for us at Prairie View, our entire church, to reevaluate where we've been in the past, where we are right now, and then look ahead to the future about what type of church we want to be. What kind of church is Prairie View going to be? And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2. And I do want to say this. One of the first things that I want to do in my time here at Prairie View, the first priority for me is that I want to get to know people. That's the biggest thing I can do in the first few weeks and months I'm here is get to know people. That has to be priority number one for me, and it is. And one thing that I'm going to do over the next several weeks, and some of you know about this, some of you may not know about this yet, but one thing I'm going to be doing over the next few weeks is that I'm going to be visiting small groups. And I'm going to be visiting small groups for several reasons. Number one, like I said, it gives me an opportunity to get to know you. It gives me an opportunity to get to know some of your habits, some of your hobbies, some of your interests, who's friends with who, who lives where. That's all really good stuff for me to know. And so that's one thing it's going to accomplish. Another thing that me visiting small groups is going to accomplish is that it's going to give me an idea of how small groups work here. It's important for me to know who leads the small groups, where do they meet, who is in whose small group, what type of stuff are they discussing. So that's reason number two I'm going to be visiting small groups. And then reason number three that I'm going to be visiting small groups is that I have three questions I want to ask every single person in this church. And I will get back to that in a second, but three questions I want to ask when I visit small groups, and this is homework for you if you want to go ahead and start preparing for this. Those three questions are number one, what brought you to Prairie View? How did you get to Prairie View? What circumstances fell into place? What types of things happened that caused you to walk through the doors of Prairie View Christian Church for the first time? Whether it was a week ago or a month ago or a year ago or whether you've been here from day one, I want to know what brought you here. What happened that led you to this church? And then question number two is, what do you love about Prairie View? So if question number one is about how did you get here, question number two is kind of more about, okay, well, why did you stay here? What is it about Prairie View that kept you here from that first time you came? What kind of things did they offer? What kind of needs did they meet that caused you to come back again and again and again? And so that'll give me an idea of where you're at right now, how you got here, and where our church is at right now. And then question number three, and this is kind of the most hard one, is what are your dreams for Prairie View's future? When you think about Prairie View one year down the road or five years down the road or ten years down the road, what do you see? Do you see maybe shoring up some areas of weakness? Do you see focusing on strengths? Do you see starting a food pantry? Do you see expanding the building? Do you see planting a church on the other side of town or even on the other side of the world? What are your dreams for Prairie View? 
And I ask those three questions because those are going to help me. Your answers to those are going to help me determine, okay, where has Prairie View been in the past? Where is Prairie View right now as a church? And what kind of church is it that you all want us to become in the future? And those are important questions to ask. And I do want to say that if you're not in a small group, I still want to hear your answers. So if you're not in a small group and I don't get a hold of you, email me, call me, you know, come to the office and visit me on a weekday or something. I'd love to hear your answers. I'd love to hear your opinions about where we are right now and where we want to be in the future. Now, all that being said, as important as your opinions are about where you think Prairie View is and where Prairie View is going to be down the road, and as important as my opinions are and as important as the elders' opinions are, the opinion that matters most is what kind of church does God want us to be? What kind of church does God want Prairie View to be right now? And what should we be striving to be in the future? And that's what we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 2. But before we get into that text, before we really dig into it, I want to give you some background about this church. If you're a half-glass-empty type person, you could read this passage and say, Oh my gosh, Prairie View is never going to be like that. We are never going to do all these things. We're never going to get it all right the way this church does. This church is perfect, and we're never going to be perfect. And I would say, number one, you're right that we're never going to be perfect. We are never going to be a perfect church. There is not a perfect church out there. But we can strive to be more like the church we see in this passage. And then you might also think, man, you know, this church has it all together. And yeah, they do a good job. They've got some things going for them. And they seem to be perfect at this time. But they weren't always going to stay perfect. Things were going to come up. Problems were going to happen. Controversies would occur. And that's okay, because they weren't the perfect church, and neither are we, and we never will be. But the good news about that is, like Jeff's saying, is that God takes weak things, and he uses them for amazing purposes. So don't think that we have to get this all perfectly right, or else we're just total failures, because we're not. We're striving to be the church that God calls us to be. That is what we need to keep our focus on. Another thing to keep in mind with this passage is that this is really the first ever church post-Jesus. Literally. Like, this is the first church that existed after Jesus lived and died and rose from the grave and ascended. And this is only about two months within the time frame that Jesus died and was raised and ascended. And so this is a very young church, and they're kind of flying by the seat of their pants, to be honest. Because if you look at this church, when they have issues, when they have trouble, when they have controversy, they can't open Scripture and say, well, what does 1 Corinthians say that we should do about this? Scripture didn't exist. There wasn't a New Testament at this time. So what did they do when problems came up? Well, they found an apostle. They went to Peter and said, hey, uh, Peter, we got this issue going on. Um, we don't really know what to do about it. You spent some time with Jesus. What do you think he would have us do? And Peter would say, well, I think you need to do this. Okay. Well, what do you do if Peter's not available or one of the other apostles are not available? Then you've got people who are saying, well, you know, we've got this problem. And we don't really know what to do about it. We can't talk to Peter. We can't talk to any, other, any of the other apostles. So you know what? We've been told that we have this spirit. I don't know what it means. Uh, you know, supposedly this Holy Spirit's living inside of us, but... He's supposed to guide us and direct us, and I guess this is what he's telling me to do, so uh, let's do it. And they would just have to hope that it worked out. And the reason I say this is because as we as a church, as we look at where we are right now and where we want to be down the road, we have Scripture to look at. And Scripture is and will always be this church's final authority. 
for what we do and for what we teach. And so as much as your opinions matter, as much as my opinions matter, as much as the elders' opinions matter, what does Scripture have to say? What type of church should we be striving to be right now and in the future? What kind of church are we? So let's look at this church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I'm going to start reading in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's several traits I want to look at in this passage, but the first three are all in verse 42. So if you look at verse 42, the first trait that we see about this Acts 2 church that seems to have it all together, that seems to be the church that we are called to strive to be, the first thing they did is that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So what was that teaching? We're looking at the first church, so why not look at the first sermon? In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, we see Peter preaching for the first time, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then you look at verse 36, Peter's conclusion to his sermon. Pretty hard-hitting conclusion. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, not maybe, not probably, not possibly, but let them know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. If we are going to be the church that God calls us to be, we have got to be unashamedly, uncompromisingly devoted to that teaching. That teaching that Christ lived and he died on the cross and he rose from the grave. And that he is Lord and that he is Christ and that he is King. We have got to be devoted to that. And you notice in the passage it says being devoted to the apostles' teaching. Well, like I said, we don't have apostles today. I'm not an apostle. The elders aren't apostles. Your small group leader is not an apostle. So stay devoted to this teaching, not because I stand up here and say it, not because the elders say it, not because your small group leaders say it. Stay devoted to this teaching because it is Scripture, period. That's what you stay devoted to. Stay devoted to Scripture. And if you hear something that I say or that the elders say or that your small group leader says that doesn't match up with Scripture, talk to us about it. Pull us aside. Say, hey, I saw this in Scripture. What, you know, what, what's the deal with this? We want to know because we are called to be a biblically-based church, a church that is devoted to Scripture at all times and all things. That's what we're called to be, and that's what this church was. Trait number two in verse 42 is that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. And most commentators say that in this particular instance, that term, breaking of bread, probably refers to official organized communion. And, you know, I think we often marginalize communion in today's church. 
We're tempted to let it become just a tradition or a ritual or a check-the-box type of thing. But communion is so much more than that. If you look with me in Luke chapter 22, verses 19 through 21, we see Jesus saying this. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave bread to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You know, this particular instance, we see Jesus celebrating the Passover with his apostles and with his followers. And we see that and we think, okay, well, he's celebrating Passover and he starts communion. Yeah, that's important. It's good to know that. But that is such a big deal. What Jesus just said in that passage, that is such a big deal. And we take it for granted. Because you look at this meal, this Passover meal. It's this meal that Jews had celebrated for centuries and for generations. And they were using this meal to commemorate how God had led them out of Egypt. How God had led them out of slavery in Egypt, you know, generations ago. And family after family after family after family had celebrated this meal. It was this sacred tradition that you did not touch. And here comes Jesus and he says, hey guys, you know this thing that you've been practicing for all these years, this thing that is so important to the heart of your faith? Well, I'm going to make it about me now. Hope that's okay. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And if you're one of those guys, you might be thinking to yourself, who does this guy think he is? Taking Passover taking this thing that we have celebrated for centuries and making it about him. Well, the answer is that he can make it about him, number one, because he's Jesus, but then number two, because he realizes that the deliverance that he is about to offer through the cross and through the resurrection is greater than any deliverance from any national power you can imagine. The deliverance that Christ offers these people and offers us is greater than breaking some chains of slavery. It's greater than breaking some type of oppression. It's the greatest freedom that we can imagine. And that's why Christ takes the Passover and makes it about him. Because the deliverance that he offers is even better than the deliverance that the Passover offered. That's a big deal. That is a huge deal. And Christ is calling us to use this meal, this communion meal that we celebrate weekly, not just as a tradition, not just as a ritual, but as a starting point for us to remember everything Christ did every single day of our lives. We are called to be a church that is constantly remembering the sacrifice that Christ made, the victory that Christ experienced, and the deliverance that he offers us through his blood. That's what communion's about. And we are called to be a church that does that regularly and honors that, and takes that seriously. That's trait number two. Trait number three is that they were devoted to the prayers. The first Sunday that I was ever here at Prairie View, back in early December, at that point I wasn't even an official candidate yet. I was just a guest preacher at that point. And so I came and I preached that Sunday morning. And I remember the night before I had met with Craig and the other elders, and they hadn't scared me off yet. I regret that, but uh, not really. But I met with Craig and the other elders, and Craig told me that, hey, you know, our service is at 10, but we have this elders meeting every single morning on Sunday morning before the service. And I'd never heard of that before. I'd never heard of elders that met on Sunday mornings before the service. 
And so I asked Craig, you know, so what's the deal with that? And Craig explained to me that the reason they have those meetings on Sunday mornings is because they discovered over time that when they met regularly throughout the month, like they do, they would have so much church business to discuss and so many things to talk about and so many decisions to make that they found themselves tempted to neglect prayer. And so the elders stepped back and said, look, this is not okay that we are tempted to neglect prayer because we're too busy. And so they came up with the idea that they were going to meet on Sunday mornings before each service when all of them would be there for the most part, except for Craig today. (laughs) But they were going to be there. They were pretty much all going to be there and they were going to meet and they were going to pray because that was a huge priority for these elders. And you should take that as an encouragement to you to know that your elders are praying for you on a weekly basis. Your elders are praying for your physical needs, for your spiritual needs. They are elders of prayer, and they are praying for you, and they need you to pray for them too. And we need to be praying for each other as a regular part of life, because that's just what we do. That's just the kind of church we are. If we are not a praying church, we are not a healthy church. We need to be praying for one another, for the leadership, for the lost, for our community. We need to be a church of prayer. That is a trait that we have got to embrace if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be right now and be the church that God wants us to be in the future. So those three traits are hugely important. But I want to skip forward a little bit to verses 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, if you're a good political conservative in the room today... You might read that and your red flags go up because you're thinking, oh, my goodness, the early church was socialist. Well, here's the thing. They weren't socialist. Some commentators say that, yeah, the church was socialist in the early days. I would say they really weren't. And here's why. This church, they're redistributing wealth. They are. But no one's forcing them to do it. They are just taking it upon themselves to help one another. That's not socialism, that's love. And that's sacrifice. And no one's holding a gun to their head and telling them that, hey, you have to help these people. They are just doing it because that's just what they do. They're a church, and that's just what they do. And if we're spiritually healthy, if we are where we need to be as a church, it's not going to take someone coercing you to help one another. It's not going to take someone holding a gun to your head to get you to help the poor. If we are where we need to be as a church, this just goes without being said. That's just what we do. And, you know, I often wonder what would happen if you took, let's say, the Apostle Paul and you put him in a time machine and you brought him to the typical American church today and said, Hey, Paul, uh, this is our church. What do you think? And then Paul said, Well, wait a minute. I just saw that person over there drive in in a Jaguar and I saw that person over there, uh, you know, hardly even make it in, and their clothes look terrible, Uh, their shoes, their toes are poking out of the front of their shoes. What's the deal here? And then you said, oh, well, you know, Paul, I mean, you know, we're going to have some rich people and some poor people. That's just how it is. You know, that's just how the world works. Sorry. Paul would say, really? That's how it works? This is how the church works? Paul would be dumbfounded by that idea, that there would be rich people who aren't helping those who need help. And if we are where we need to be as a church spiritually, that's going to be less of a problem. Are we going to be perfect? No. 
But we need to be taking care of one another and loving one another and helping each other. Not because we're being forced to, not because we're being threatened with punishment, but just because that's what we do. That is just how our church works. That's what we're called to be. It's not socialism. It's love. It's sacrifice. It's taking care of one another. Looking at verse 46, moving on to the end of our passage. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I look at this church, and this is not the type of church that would come together on Sunday morning, and then if they saw each other at Meyer, they would hide behind a display. That is not this kind of church. This is the kind of church that is voluntarily going out of their way to spend time together as much as they possibly can. One commentator I read said that it's kind of like birds of a feather flock together, is the term that he used. In this day, when you saw one Christian, you saw another Christian. They were somewhere close by because there were not Christian loners. There was none of the whole, I'm just going to stay home and have my own church. They were a community that loved each other, and they were a family. And that didn't just happen from 10 to 1130 on Sunday morning. It happened every single day of the week. And you notice that first term of breaking bread back in verse 42. Commentators say that's about communion. But the second occurrence in verse 46, most commentators say, no, that's just about eating together. Informal meals, spending time together, sitting down with one another. As Jeff said, devoting themselves to one another, making covenants with one another, eating together, not because they had to, but because they just wanted to. And that's just what they did. And they loved each other. It's that simple. They spent time together outside of Sunday morning. And that's the kind of church that we're called to be too. And everything they received, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, and they praised God. Are we the type of people who are generously giving away the things that God has given us? Are we the type of people that are rejoicing in what God does give us, not sitting back and being so proud of how we accomplished this and how we earned this? Are we the type of people who are humbly being grateful for everything we have and willing to share it with the world? Because that's the kind of church we see here. That's the kind of family we see here. And that's the kind of family that we're called to be here at Prairie View. We're called to be people who are rejoicing constantly, praising constantly, not just from 10 to 1130, but in every single aspect of our lives. And you look at this last trait I want to discuss, and I think this is the trait that is often overlooked in a passage like this. And that last trait is this. They had favor with all the people. You know, we live in a culture today where if your church is growing or if your church is loved and embraced and appreciated by the community, people automatically assume, well, you know what? You must be compromising. You must be not teaching the truth. You must be conforming to culture. And I would say that's not the case at all. We as a church, we can be unashamedly committing to, committed to our teachings. We can be unbashfully taking stances on the things that we need to take stances on. But if we are letting love permeate all that we do, if we are functioning as the family we are called to be, people in our community, whether they go to church or not, whether they know Christ or not, whether they go to this church or not, 
people are going to say, you know what? Yeah, that Prairie View Christian Church, I don't agree with their stance on this. And yeah, I don't really buy their teachings. But you know what? I can't deny the fact that they are good for our community. I cannot deny that. And that's the kind of church that we are called to be. A church that has favor with all the people. Where anyone in our community would say, you know what? I don't go there. I don't know a lot about it. But I'm glad they're there. Because they make our community a better place. Through the way they treat people. Through the way they love people. Through the needs that they are meeting. That's what it means to have favor with all the people. And it doesn't mean we compromise our teaching. It doesn't mean that we compromise our practice. It doesn't mean that we conform to culture or we sell out. It means that we love the way we're called to love. Now, here's the issue. It sounds simple, but it's really not that simple. And as you look at this passage, this is not just some ABC perfect formula for church growth. But I can tell you this, looking at verse 43... And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. As I look at that passage, I can tell you this. While this isn't a foolproof, automatic success, church growth model from Scripture, I am 100% confident that if we are doing the things that this church did, if we are devoted to our teaching, if we are taking communion seriously, if we are praying for one another, if we are spending time together as a family, if we are taking care of one another, not because we're forced to, but because we just want to, if we're doing those things, amazing things are going to happen in this church. And amazing things are going to happen in this community. I'm 100% confident of that. And then I look at the end of verse 47, and the results of all this stuff is that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Like I said, doing this stuff doesn't mean that we're going to be a church of a thousand in two weeks. But it does mean that we are going to be more like the church that God calls us to be right now and in the future. And as much as your opinions matter, as much as my opinions matter, as much as the elders' opinions matter, we can have strategies and we can have structures and we can have visions and plans and mission statements. But the people who are going to determine what kind of church we are, are you. You are the ones who are going to determine what kind of church Prairie View is. Because when the rubber hits the road, y'all are the ones going out into the world. Y'all are the ones who have jobs with people who don't know Christ. You are the ones who are in contact with people who have no idea what Prairie View even is. And so we can have plans and we can have strategies, but ultimately where the rubber hits the road, you guys are the ones who will determine what type of church we're going to be right now. And in the future. And our opinions matter, but what matters most is what does Scripture say? What kind of church should we be right now? And what kind of church are we going to be down the road? That's the question. In this time of transition, in this time where we are, you know, getting used to one another, in this time that we are transitioning into this new stage in my life and in Prairie View's lives and in your lives, this is the opportunity that we have to look at that question And really refocus. Get back to scripture. Not that we ever abandoned it. But looking at that example as our prime example. Trying to be the church scripture calls us to be. And you know what? If we're going to be the church that scripture calls us to be. We may look at ourselves and say, you know what? We're doing some things pretty well. But there's other things that we need to work on. And being the kind of church that scripture calls us to be. Means that we might have to be willing to give up some things that we're prideful about, to make some little changes, to be willing to admit that we need improvement. 
But if we're willing to do that, I am 100% confident that in verse 43 and verse 47, that amazing things are going to happen in this community and that people are going to be saved. People are going to be added to God's number. That's what we should be striving for, being a biblical church that is introducing people to Christ through what we say and through what we do. And in this time of transition, it's the perfect opportunity for us to refocus on that. You know, once I heard a preacher ask the question, if you were to close your doors tomorrow, if your church were to close its doors tomorrow, stop having services, stop having a small group, stop having worship, stop doing everything, if you closed your doors tomorrow, would anyone in the community notice? I don't know. I can't answer that question. I haven't been here long enough to know. But if the answer is no, that no one would notice, then we've got some work to do. And if the answer is yes, then we're on the right track. Would anyone in the community notice? Because we are called to be a shining light. That's what this church was. That's what we're called to be. And now we get to do it together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have scripture to go off of as we determine who it is that we are called to be individually and who it is that we're called to be as a church. And God, I pray that as we explore these traits that this church has, as we look at our strengths and as we look at our weaknesses, I pray that we'll be honest and that we'll be willing to make the changes needed to become the church that you want us to be. God, I pray that you'll give us courage. I pray that you'll give us wisdom. I pray that you'll give the leadership courage and wisdom as they make decisions that will help us down that road. And I pray that we will stay devoted to your teaching. That's priority number one. I pray for this church during this time of transition, for me and for my wife and for just the entire church. I pray that we'll use this opportunity as a chance to really, truly focus on what it is you want us to be and what kind of church we're called to be. I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you for the opportunity and the privilege that we have to be here. And I thank you for the privilege that I have to serve here. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen.